The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Emily Barry, a reporter at Market Watch. It's been a bit of a tale of two cities in fintech this year. You have once hot stocks like Affirm and Coinbase down roughly 90% on the year, but at the same time, stalwarts like MasterCard and Visa have held it better than the market. You may be asking whether it's time to stick to defense next year or if you should scoop up some of those beaten down names. Fortunately, we're joined today by Lisa Ellis, Senior Managing Director at SVB Moffat Nathanson, and Dan Dolev, a Senior Analyst at Mizuho, who will share some thoughts about how to play payment stocks in 2023. Welcome, Lisa and Dan. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Um, Payments is a pretty broad universe, even among just public companies. Um, so Lisa, do you want to start us off with just your Reader's Digest version, 60-second overview on how you break down the categories in payments? Um, sure. Yeah, we think of uh, the payments names, I guess, in maybe three broad categories. So the big bellwethers in the place most people start are the networks, Visa, MasterCard, and American Express that are sort of the hub of the payment system and broadly reflect the overall trends in consumer payments, the digitization of cash and checks, um, and they're very global in nature. Then the second grouping I would say are the, um, you know, oft overlooked but very important and we think very interesting sort of payments plumbing companies, uh, which is players like Fiserv, um, Fidelity National, uh, Global Payments, et cetera, and then newer players in that space like an Adyen, who provide that back-end underlying plumbing. They're often not visible to consumers directly, but they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. And then the last group is the, the, the sort of growthy newer players, many of which are tied to either digital banking or e-commerce or some of the new trends like mobile point-of-sale systems and that or buy now, pay laters. That would be players like a block, a PayPal, a toast, and a firm, um, a you know, players like that. And they're obviously more high growth, they tend to be in general less profitable, although not always the case, you know, and so tend to have valuations that are kind of beaten down right now, but more tied, you know, to the, you know, the the broader macroeconomic environment, long term growth names. Got it. That's helpful. Um, maybe we'll start with uh, Visa and MasterCard, because those are both uh, pretty battle tested for bad times. They managed to grow revenue in 20 um, in 2009. Um, so if you're an investor worried about a recession next year, are those two stocks still a safe place to be? Uh, for me, absolutely. Definitely. They're, I think, number three and number four on our picks list right now, Visa and MasterCard. Um, while they certainly have some level of recession um, sensitivity, like any consumer name does, their revenues and earnings will be impacted as consumer spending slows. Um, they are quite resilient. And as you highlighted in 2009, actually grew both volumes and revenues as well as earnings. And the reason for that is because of that long term underlying secular trend of cash to card conversion that really drives the sort of the engine of those businesses. And that continues unabated 
whether we're in a hot macro environment or a weak macro environment and sustains that underlying growth rate. So even if you expected a pretty severe recession next year, like GDP to slow by five points, right? We'd still expect MasterCard and Visa to comfortably grow revenues in the mid to high single digits and grow earnings potentially even in the double digits. They're great defensive names. I'd say maybe I'd flag the one thing that they are dealing with right now is pretty severe FX headwinds because they're very global in nature. Um, and, you know, and so that is a bit more of a headwind on earnings currently relative to some other maybe more U.S. centric names. Um, but aside from that, they're great plays during a macro slowdown. They're actually also very um, uh, inflation. They're actually beneficiaries of inflation because their pricing is tied to the dollar value of payments. And that's been kind of a nice offset to some of the FX issues. Got it. Um, they've traded pretty similarly this year. Do you have a preference between the two? Um, it's always like, you know, choosing between your children. (laughs) You love them both. It's just a matter of which one on what day, I suppose. Um, uh, Right now, we prefer Visa over MasterCard. That's a valuation dynamic more than anything. Um, They've been trading at an unusually wide gap right now uh, with, um, you know, Visa trading at a discount, a wider discount to MasterCard than normal. Uh, What we think is probably underappreciated about the Visa story is, one, um, their strength in Europe prior to the pandemic, they had just bought their European business, Visa Europe, and and were having to kind of do a big overhaul of that business, and it wasn't doing particularly well. But a lot of that has been resolved now, and we think that going forward, the European business will actually do fine. I mean, um, you, you know, and we'll sort of close the performance gap to MasterCard. And then there are some other factors they've got. Um, uh, they made some very good progress with some of their diversification initiatives, value-added services, and then some of their expansion into new flows, which we also think is contributing probably more than many investors realize to their, you know, to their volume and earnings outlook going forward. But again, you can't really um, go wrong between the two. And I would actually rarely recommend that an investor actually sell one position and take the other one. It's more a matter of kind of, you know, in, on any one moment, how you, you know, do a weighting between the two. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, they've done a they've done a pretty good job, you know, over their long histories of staying ahead of new competitive threats. You know, things like buy now, pay later, and you know the rise of PayPal and stuff like that. Um, they've also done a decent job of staying ahead of regulation. Dan, um, are there new threats you're worried about, whether it's competitive or regulatory, with these guys? Yeah. So, I mean, I principally I, I totally agree with Lisa on the recession resistance. I mean, if you go back to like you know, 08, 09, like they were able to, for me, the most important thing that they were able to grow margins in like 08, 09, 10 by like hundreds of basis points, protecting, you know, margins against against the downturn. But I do think, uh, you know, I do think things have changed and uh, we're a, lo- a little more cautious on Visa. So we have a neutral on Visa. Um, if you have to choose between the two, MasterCard is better. And let me tell you why, because I do think that um, what happened, you know, what's going to happen now, basically, given the post-COVID era is that you're reaching, uh, or you're, you're at least starting to see the end of that cash-to-card conversion. You're, you're probably north of 80% uh, in the U.S. in terms of um, card use. And, and if you think about it, two-thirds of growth uh, for Visa, top-line growth, if you think about that 9% long-term KGAR, two-thirds of it comes from cash-to-card conversion. So I'm not saying it's going to impact them this year or next year, but you know when you run a DCF, a discounted cash flow analysis, to value these names, you have to think about the next five to 10 years. And at some point, they're going to reach that you know, point where 
they cannot get that oomph anymore from cash to card. The second thing I'm a little worried about is Fed now. And if you think about kind of the implications of Fed now, which is an account-to-account real-time payment scheme, that's going to come live in the U.S. later this year, um, later next year. I'm already in 2023 in my head. So sometime, you know, in the second half of 2023. Um, if you go back to the DOJ, uh, the Department of Justice indictment of you know, when Visa was trying to buy Plaid, um, you saw these emails between the executives, and they were really worried about the account-to-account, um, kind of the, the, the rise of account-to-account uh, money transfer in free, real-time, uh, as a headwind to their debit business. And now it's there, and, it, and they could not buy Plaid. So I'm thinking, well, you know, is, is, is that kind of a future concern? So all my concerns are a little bit more, a little bit more longer term. They're mostly weighing on the multiple at this point, not on the numbers, but it's something to keep in mind. Got it. Um... And uh, this, this has been great so far. I just wanted to remind the audience, uh, feel free to submit questions you have for Dan and Lisa. Um, Dan, what, what's your favorite defensive name for next year? I still, I really like uh, Pfizer. I think that, you know, if you think about sort of the, the three, uh, they're, used, they're called the deal stocks and payments. So it's Pfizer, FIS, and, and global payments. If you think about sort of from a fundamental perspective, Pfizer stands out, right? And the reason it stands out is because they, they have a, uh, they were smart enough, or Frank Bisignano, who's the CEO, was smart enough back in the last decade to, uh, to buy Clover. And Clover's a branded point of sale competing with Square, competing with Toast. And they're doing great, right? If you think about Pfizer, they have sort of the best of both worlds. They've got a massive, um, you know, massive breadth because they have millions of merchants. And they also have a great, shiny, white, POS, which everyone likes to, to have, which is good for, you know, cobblers, it's good for restaurants, it's good for pizza shops, you see it everywhere. So they're printing the best numbers. If you look at them versus, you know, FIS or versus global payments, they've been outgrowing them. And, you know, when, when COVID came, you really saw the difference between the people that, that were saying that they have a great business and the people that actually had a great business. And Pfizer had that. So I'm not as worried about the fact that they traded a premium to those two. I still think that the execution is key and people will pay for top line growth and fundamentals. So that's my favorite defensive name. Got it. Um, you mentioned the deal stocks. We have a question from uh, Mark in the audience asking, are any global payment acquisitions working out badly? Um, so that's pretty broad, but uh, I guess there, you know, there is some debate about the, the big deals that were done a few years ago um, from, from Pfizer, FIS and global payments. Uh, do you have thoughts on sort of how those have panned out? a few years out and um, maybe any, any of the other names. I know FIS um, or Fidelity National is. Yeah, um, I mean, for me or for Lisa? Either, either one. I'll give you my, 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 my 30 seconds and then Lisa probably has strong views as well. I think, I think with the exception of Fiserv, the other two have been um, a complete, very disappointment. I mean, Global Payments has been a disaster. Um, they're now having to pay private equity to uh, to buy or finance or it's like seller financing to buy, to buy parts of thesis, uh, which is net spend. Thesis itself, the issue of processing, is just about to get disrupted in the future. And the core merchant acquiring business is 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 you know very very disappointing in my view. FIS is more interesting because you have an activist involved now. You've got T E Shaw and Jana. Um, there is there is definitely hope. I still have a buy on it. I do think that the sum of the parts makes a lot of sense but it requires a big fix. So the, the only one really that really worked is Fiserv, and I continue to see that thriving. Got it. Lisa, what's your take? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I know, Dan, I don't normally agree so much, but we agree tonight. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, Something F must be wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> FIS. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, FIS. I'm. I. Um, given that the FISERV acquisition of First Data and the FIS acquisition of WorldPay were very similar <laughs> transactions. Um, to me, the, the sort of evident, clear disparity in how they've resulted, have the, how they've worked out, in those cases have more to do with leadership and commitment to the investment required in those businesses. Fiserv was very committed to um, elevating and promoting a lot of the first data leadership, keeping them there, investing in Clover, investing in Carrot, basically using the cash out of the legacy FIS business, which is very stable and cash generating, but doesn't have a lot of growth to basically fuel the innovation and growth in the first data business and very successfully. So, and, you know, Frank obviously came from first data. That's been a wild success. The FIS world pay situation was basically a tale of two cities where, you know, they sort of was sort of a bit of a copycat deal. You know, they did it after um, Pfizer bought first data and, I would say from the beginning, didn't really demonstrate the same level of commitment to the investment required to compete with all these upstarts, like an Audion, like a Stripe, like a Toast in these in players. And they really didn't uh, also didn't um, retain a lot of the critical executives as well. So here we are almost three years later and uh, they're, you know, in a very, very two businesses that, you know, three years ago, people couldn't ever even remember which one was which, <laughs> to be honest, um, are now very different. Um, and, you know, and, and we've got a really tough situation going on at, at FIS. Um, it's a big, heavy lift there. There's not a silver bullet. I think a lot of investors are like peeking under every rock looking for a silver bullet. And in our view, it's actually a lot of just blocking and tackling that needs to happen. Uh, margin improvement, getting costs under control, getting the cash flow under control so that then they can kind of start to reinvigorate the business. And I completely agree. So I won't reiterate what Dan said about the global payments acquisition of TSIS. It was sort of a, you know, a, um, a, a them buying a little bit of a less high quality business. And then I think they've sort of been trying to, you know, kind of back, had to then kind of struggle to backfill that. Uh, after the after the transaction, and as a result, also maybe have let their own core business, the global payments merchant acquiring business, um, atrophy a little bit, which has been a disappointment. And now they're sort of, you know, having to do a whole series of divestitures and then other acquisitions to try to piece it back together. Um, you know, that one we're we're holding out hope. We're we're neutral market perform rated on global payments. We're watching it carefully, but the thing that's really um, a struggle for us right now is the cash flow dynamics at global payments because they have all of these divestitures and acquisitions. The quality of their cash flow and earnings has been quite weak, and we're really looking for that to improve to feel comfortable um, with the longer term outlook for that one. Got it. Um, well, it's nice to hear you guys agreeing, but um, I want to shift gears for a bit. Very rare. Very rare. <laughs> um, I can't have two. Fintech analysts on here without asking about Coinbase. Um, interest in crypto trading was already down before the FTF, FTX collapsed, um, which made people even more skittish about crypto and invited more regulatory attention. Their debt's trading for about uh, 50 cents on the dollar. Um, you, you guys have different views on this one. Um, Dan, do you want to go first? Uh, the stock's down almost 90% this year. Do you see more risk ahead? Um, that it goes away eventually but um that's kind of the uh that's the ultimate risk i mean we're not pricing it right now we have an underperform in a 30 dollar price circuit 
I can, you know, the one thing I have to say, I was, I was shocked by how quickly it sort of came down to closer and closer to a price target. I think the big risk is, uh, and, and, and I'm sure we disagree on this one, you know, vehemently, but the big risk here is that, you know, they are in a, um, even though they are the regulated, honest, I'll give them all the credibility they want, they still live in a really bad neighborhood, right? They're in the barrio. And, and all their neighbors have their windows shattered and, you know, ranging from FTX to all these other stuff. So it's not a great neighborhood to be in. But my, my particular concern there is the way they make money. They make money when there's air pumped into the casino and people keep, you know, keep gambling, right? So people are buying and selling those tokens, which I think are worthless. Uh, it's when the music stops there, and you're starting to see that now, right, where their volumes, their daily volumes are sub-2 billion. They used to be, like, you know, multiples of that earlier in the year. They just don't make enough money to cover the overhead, so they're going to have to cut more costs. And then the cherry on top of the cake would be if they have to somehow renegotiate the uh, deal they have with Circle. A lot of the money they make now, like it's going to be six to $700 million um, next year, is from interest income from uh, the Circle, the U.S. Uh, D.C., which is just easy money, free money because uh, because of higher interest rates. So if something happens with interest rates or they have to renegotiate that contract, I think there's going to be another leg to this story. So I'm, I'm really concerned. It's my top short, I would say, from all of my coverage. I'm sure Lisa has other views. <laughs> yeah, Lisa, what's your take? They have this sort of perfect storm right now of regulatory problems, competitive issues, um, just like the state of crypto and in investors' minds. Um, why do you think there are better times ahead? Yeah, well, I... I so my view on Coinbase is it's a very unique asset as a public equity in that it's a way to play, in my view, the long term. You're, you have to be a believer in crypto and blockchain technology over time. Um, and if you are, this, in my view, is a pretty unique investment asset. But you have to have a multi-year time frame. This isn't a market that you know, you can easily predict over a six to 12 month time frame. It's sort of, you have to have a strong stomach and look out multiple years. Um, but I think of Coinbase as more of an infrastructure provider to the crypto economy. I focus less on how they make their money in the near term, which is very retail trading oriented, because I think of that as that's sort of the phenomenon or the use case we've seen in crypto in this cycle. It's a bit backward looking, but as we're looking forward, other use cases for crypto are already starting to percolate and gain a lot more traction. Modernization of clearing and settlement infrastructure globally, for example, um, using NFTs to digitize both physical assets as well as to assign value in a very real way to digital assets, which have historically been, you know, you've been kind of unable to assign value to and, and trade. Um, payments related use cases, particularly for cross border, but also even at the retail point of sale and uh, D5 related applications, particularly in developing markets where, you know, people are interested in holding crypto like in a self custodied way, the way you would hold cash and use it day to day. The point being any one of those may emerge as like the killer use case for the next cycle. I don't think it's going to be the trading, the bubble, right, that we've seen this time. That's why you've seen this whole collapse and the air come out of it. But Coinbase, their core assets are in areas like custody, the secure storage and protection of digital assets, 
providing on-ramps and off-ramps um, to move you between fiat and crypto, providing the Coinbase Cloud, which is a developer platform for um, software, you know, so small companies, startups building things um, on Ethereum and other blockchains. It's like I think of those building blocks as really what I'm watching um, in, in terms of thinking about how they're positioned. It's sort of like a, I think of them as like a picks and shovels provider to the crypto ecosystem. Um, but that said, well, on one hand, I'd say, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and they're hanging in there right now. And they've got, you know, fully audited financials and plenty of cash on the balance sheet. And I have high confidence they're going to be just fine, which makes it a pretty attractive entry point into the stock. There are no questions, some looming regulatory um, hurdles in the U.S. that will um, limit, you know, investors' appetite for this stock until they're resolved. The big ones just being rulings from the SEC on what they're going to consider to be a security versus a commodity. Um, also rulings from the regulators on to what extent you can have a um, custodian, a brokerage, an exchange all within one entity or not. Um, Coinbase has openly said they can handle any of these outcomes, regulatory outcomes, but they do need to know what the answer is so that they can adjust their business appropriately. And realistically, that is, you know, probably um, something, you know, we have to get some resolution on those issues uh, at some point before we'll probably really see us come out of this crypto winter and, and uh, you know, and gain, regain a lot of momentum. Got it. Um, we have a question from... Hal in the audience, he's asking for your take on PayPal. Um, they've had a pretty rough year for them. It's down about um, 60%, I think. Uh, they were a real pandemic darling, but things have fallen apart there a little bit with uh, some rough projections and questions about the state of their checkout button. Um, so with that stock beaten down a lot, how are you looking at it going into next year? Anyone can take that one. Um, I'll start and then maybe Dan Paul's this one. I mean, I'm, um, uh, I would say more cautious than I have been in the past on PayPal looking into 2023. Um, we're still outperform rated on them because of mostly valuation, but there, but it's very transparently toward the very bottom of our list right now. And we've got kind of a, you know, caution sign on it um, really mostly for um, competitive reasons uh, um, yes, they came off the pandemic. They overspent, you know, like a lot, you know, and, and kind of like a lot of pandemic darlings did. They've had to, call, you know, bring that back and cut costs and expand margins and, you know, clean up a lot of like aspects of their financials. But that's not really the issue um, that's pressuring them. It's a multiple problem, not an earnings problem, so to speak. So, and that's competitive. And the real thing that's changed is that the pandemic triggered merchants um, in store in store merchants to finally adopt um, tap to pay in the US those terminals have been available for years and years but the US has been way behind the rest of the the, the world in adopting them but the pandemic really triggered that people didn't want to touch the terminal you know a lot of businesses shut down and had an opportunity to kind of do a big refresh of their point of sale infrastructure and now you're seeing just explosive growth in tap to pay contactless payments in the US. I'm sure many of the audience here have started doing that, getting encouraged to do it at the point of sale. Um, but, the, but the challenge is that that has finally, seven years in, started to drive usage of Apple Pay, which has literally languished for seven years since it 
um, was first launched um, because it's very easy to use and tap to pay at the point of sale. And that's starting to transfer to usage online and in app. And again, for the first time, literally in seven years since Apple Pay was launched, we're actually starting to see some noticeable upticks in usage of Apple Pay on, um, online. And that's quite you know disruptive and concerning for PayPal because PayPal's sitting in you know the very prime position. They have nearly 30% share of online checkout in the US. Apple Pay is currently only about 4%, so it's still much, much lower. Um, but historically, we've never seen any other mode of checkout button or checkout be more than one. And so this is actually a pretty big competitive move and one that because PayPal doesn't really have an in-store option, a presence um, is a problem for them. So we're watching that really carefully, I think, as are a lot of investors. Got it. What's your view, Dan? Yeah, so, you know, it's another rare agreement between uh, Lisa and, and myself. I, I, I not, not only we agree on the rating, but we also agree on the caution and a little bit more of maybe not this not being kind of an immediate home run. I do want to mention two potential catalysts that I think could actually make the stock work. One is uh, it's, it's very I mean, it's very obvious that at some point the current CEO is going to announce that he's you know, retiring. I mean, he's, you know, on the on the older side of being young and uh, very, very well respected. But I think that there's obviously like, uh, you know, there, there's definitely like some some movement out there that someone someone new, you know, fresh blood will come in. And I think that the stock would actually trade positively on that. Um, don't disagree with, with Lisa's concerns on, on, on Apple Pay. I think that's, the, that's what's basically weighing on the multiple. I do want to mention something on Venmo, which a lot, a lot of people don't think about, which is the opportunity to tap with Venmo. So if you think about Venmo right now, people use it. It is the, the quintessential P2P app in the U.S., right? And uh, uh, Apple is being sued uh, in Europe by the uh, European regulators to let third-party apps uh, join or get on the NFC chip, right? Because Apple owns the form factor. And it turns out that, um, or it's been said that that PayPal was 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 kind of helping or or helping the, the regulators like understand the issue. Now, if this if if Apple is forced to let third party apps on on the NFC chip, and if it comes to the U.S., then that's the home run for PayPal because if you think about it, a lot of young people, a lot of millennials, they use Venmo as their day to day, multiple times a day. If they had a choice to tap with Venmo, not saying use a debit card, tap with Venmo, so have Venmo being added to the uh, to the uh, to the wallet, then um, volumes, transactions, revenues for PayPal are, are going to go through the roof. So that's an I, I can't put a probability on it, but you know if the prices where PayPal trades today, it's worth a shot. Yeah, that's an in interesting one to watch for. Um, we have a question from Amira. What do you think of SoFi? Um, Dan, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, SoFi is trading like. A, close as you can get, you know, to, to, to tangible book value. So if you think about kind of the way people, the financials people that, that we talk to all day, uh, they value banks. SoFi is a regulated bank. They value them as a price to tangible book value. And it's at this point, there's almost like the downside risk is extremely minimal because it is trading at sort of, you know, bare bones right now. What's good about SoFi? It's pretty much the only, you know, digital bank out there in the U.S. that has both, you know, HiFi, it's regulated. They borrow like a bank, so they don't have as much. Their funding constraints are, are not big or not as big as the ones from like some of the buy now, pay later guys or the upstarts of the world because they can borrow like a bank at a regulated bank. They have a cachet. They've got the stadium rights. They, people know them. It's a big brand. 
and their you know personal loan business is doing great. Um, so there's a lot of like bad sentiment lending. It's it's mostly down on sentiment. The uh, the Biden uh, student moratorium is kind of behind us at this point. Mortgages are going to come back at some point. Uh, so I think that there's just more opportunities than risk. Uh, I would say from all the lenders, it's our favorite name. I think it's going to go up uh, in 2023. Got it. Let me try to squeeze one more in here, Uh, maybe like 45 seconds each on Square, uh, which is one you disagree on as well. Um, What's the outlook for that one heading into next year? Sure, I'll go. Block is one of my top picks for 2023. Um, The specific catalyst, the why now for 2023 is because of, Margin expansion at Block, we're anticipating, we're forecasting 70% EBITDA growth year on year. And the main driver of that is because um, Block, like many other pandemic winners out there, got ahead of themselves on their expenses coming off the pandemic at the end of 2021, both organically in the core business. And then, of course, they were also absorbing Afterpay, the big BNPL player. And as a result, they took a big hit on margins um, and their and their EBITDA was actually down this year, despite uh, growing their top line significantly. So um, so but we have high confidence in the CFO. She's already, you know, reining that in. Um, I met with her recently. There's no question that they're very committed um, to kind of right sizing and getting the investment prioritization in place for next year. And, you know, Block is a relatively lower margin business. The margins are only, you know, it's sort of adjusted margins are only in the high teens, 20% range. So it doesn't take a lot is the point. Um, for you to see on the OPEX side, uh, uh, to see a huge growth on the EBITDA side. That's the very specific catalyst for next year. In addition to that, we're big believers in this, this the health of the core businesses, both Square, which is the seller mobile point of sale system business, as well as the Cash App, which is the consumer digital bank. And there we think that the there's sort of this conventional wisdom view that those businesses are um, going to face headwinds, uh, disproportionate headwinds in a recession. And we firmly disagree with that view. If you look at the data, small businesses, which are what Square is tied to, actually do better in recessions than large businesses. Basically, people get fired from small, large companies and go start or run, or join smaller businesses. They actually are healthier um, and then on the Cash App side, most of the growth in Cash App is secular in nature. It's new consumers taking on these digital banks. They're seeing huge growth in their teens products with, you know, with college students, et cetera, which, again, is very secular. It sort of looks right through whether, you know, what's going on in the macro environment. Um, and so, you know, that's one of our one of our favorite ones uh, looking uh, looking into next year. Got it. Um, we're, we're pretty much at time. Dan, do you want to uh, just maybe give 30 seconds on your view on Square or Black? Yeah, I disagree. I disagree with everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I used to be the biggest Square fan, but it kind of grew on me. I think that I'm not a big fan of the CFO. I think the CEO is sort of absent. We're hearing tweets from him about Twitter where I don't think that I don't think the CEO is as engaged as he should be. If you really believe in Square, I still call it Square. Sorry for being old fashioned. But if you really believe it, you, you believe in connecting the dots. Uh, between like the, the afterpay, between the seller business, between that. I do think it's actually one more of the thiefdoms with the different business businesses being more siloed than people are giving them credit for. And I think that's the issue. 
So the idea is great. I'm 100% on board with the idea. I think the problem here is execution. I do agree with Lisa on margins. There's a lot of leeway there, but they won't, they won't get the multiple unless you can dream the dream. And right now they're relying more and more on payday lending, which I don't like. So I kind of disagree. We're lukewarm. We have a neutral. Got it. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much to Dan and Lisa for being here. Um, and thank you to our audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow when Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Associate Editor for Technology Eric Savitz will discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.